0: Today, there are 2 million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast.
1: This is the French-Canadian Legacy
0: Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. This week, we have an interview that I've been very, very excited for. And it represents, a, actually, a couple of firsts for us here on the podcast. Uh, we've had interviews before with people who have written novels. But this is the first time we'll actually discuss a novel on the podcast, which would be pretty cool. Additionally, this is the first time we will speak with a Franco-Ontarian. I will say that's something I do very little about before starting this entire project. Suzanne Rochers is an author. She wrote her MA thesis on the Fide Roi, combined creative writing and history at York University in Toronto. And her first uh, novel, which is absolutely awesome, is called Bride of New France. Suzanne Rocher. welcome to the French-Canadian legacy.
1: Thanks, Jesse. Thank you very much for finding me and making this happen. (laughs) This is great. I've been listening to some of your uh, other podcasts, and they're really good.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that. This is very cool. Now, I did mention the biography, excuse me, uh, that you are a Franco-Ontarian. So before we get to the book, again, the book was just tremendous. I would definitely like to talk about your personal history a bit. So where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in um, a village (laughs) called uh, La Fontaine, which is on um, Georgian Bay. It's about two hours north of uh, Toronto
0: in Ontario. No, that's cool. And did you grow up speaking French in the house?
1: Yeah, well, I should have. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know that story. I like this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: But um, my dad was the, the French Canadian one. My mother was an Anglophone, as we call here in Ontario, Ontario. Yeah. And uh, so they married. And, and actually, my dad, for sort of historical reasons in Ontario, didn't actually grow up speaking French himself he knew he knew how to speak French, he spoke it at school but not at home because his parents were um, part of a sort of well victims I guess of a, of a legislation in Ontario that happened it, was, it lasted about 15 years and it, was, uh, it ha- was exactly when my grandmother, his mother was born from 1912 to about 1925 where uh, French language education was outlawed in the province. So she sort of lost her uh, her own French and then couldn't really pass it on to her children, something that really saddened her. But uh, yeah, so but they ended up, the school, um, it got reinstated in school. So gotcha. a lot of her children, sort of half the children ended up learning French through school and then half of them didn't. My dad did, so he sent me to French school, but at home <laughs> we married an Anglophone and we spoke English.
0: I got you. Now, I definitely want to talk touch on the schools a little bit more because I think that's, uh, something that's very unique, um, different than what I'm familiar with here, obviously. With, we don't have the public school system in French at all, and my knowledge, never did here in New England. I mean, a ton of, ton of what we call French schools, but they're always Catholic schools.
1: And they're um, private? Is that it?
0: Or? Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Private Catholic schools, correct. Yeah. And uh, most of them, as far as very few, if any, still exist. But I know my parents growing up went to a school, was half a day in French, half a day in English, that kind of deal.
1: Okay.
0: Now, was there a big... I guess French Canadian population in, in your town was it? Is it very town specific? Are there like French towns and English towns?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the village that I was from was enti- at the time was entirely cool. francophone, and then there was like a neighboring town, Penetanguishene, which was sort of half francophone as well. But in the province of Ontario, I, I guess Ottawa, the capital city, is sure. part of the the epicenter of the Franco-ontarian world, and um, you know they have a bilingual university and. Um, Obviously, I mean, a lot of, you know, the government sort of, it runs out of Ottawa and people are bilingual. And so, so it's a very strong Francophone community. And then there are some communities in Northern Ontario. Of course, this is all sort of migration that came from sure. Quebec. At around the same time that people would have been migrating from Quebec to uh, New England, actually, for similar reasons. But some sort of went to Ontario and others went into the U.S.
0: I know. Obviously, we, we talk a lot about the time period around, you know, 1865 to, you know, the 1930s in New England. And much of that was to settle in, you know, mill towns.
1: Mm-hmm. What, what,
0: what, was there the same kind of like mill town? Yeah.
1: yeah I don't know sort of all of the the sure. uh, different economies that people went to, but I know in the community where I was from, it was that uh, logging was the industry that
0: brought. Oh, me. very cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And actually one of my ancestors spent some time in New England and, you know, this sort of doing genealogy. It wasn't me who did it. So I just had sure. kind of a line. So I don't know what happened, but they didn't meet their fortune and then they ended up, yeah. Um, actually, going to Ontario. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. history a different. That's it,
0: interesting. It's cool yeah. because the story we hear, especially when talking about, too, we've met a lot of people from Quebec through through the podcast, which has been an absolute blast for us. It's been mm. really cool. And many of them tell the story of the uncle or the aunt who went to New England, and then they kept in touch for a couple generations, and then slowly lost touch. Is that kind of the same thing that happened in Ontario?
1: Yeah, there was some of that, but in my case, they actually went to New England and then left and, came, and then moved to Ontario. So they had like the like two
0: moves. Gotcha. The,
1: yeah, that, that's all I know. There are probably others as well sure. in like the family tree, but that's the one that I remembered. Yeah.
0: Okay, cool. I did want to come back to the, the French public school system. Like mm-hmm. I said, because here we're always there are always Catholic schools. So are there currently French public schools in Ontario?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I work in one. <laughs> I teach English in a French uh, school. French language, I don't know if it's like that as well in the U.S. at the moment, but there's a real boom in um, people wanting to send their kids to French school. <laughs> it's a, no, not so much here. No, yeah. that's awesome. Interesting. Yeah, so um, I guess the idea being that, you know, you'll get better jobs if you're bilingual in Canada, sure. and it's a bilingual country and stuff. And I don't know, but it's been a craze the last decade or so. So they're building new schools all the time or taking over, you know, old English schools and, and transforming them into French schools. Um, yeah, so there's there's French public schools and French Catholic schools. Both gotcha. both are publicly funded. They're both free to attend. Oh,
0: interesting. Very cool. Yeah, but you
1: have to, theoretically, you have to have um, the right to attend, which typically means that you yourself attended a French public school. It's, it's like a language rights. Sort of thing. The idea originally, when they created that, was um, that over a number of generations, we'll sort of be able to phase this out. It was kind of like a gift that was being gotcha. given, sort of. But in fact, it hasn't happened that way because they also make exceptions, and then they let, you know, anglophones in, and it's just actually really expanding.
0: Gotcha. Um, that's super mm-hmm. fascinating.
1: So is yeah, it, is the it... province has a different set of legislation. Sure. Some don't have French schools, I guess, but, and, but most do. And then they have different rules of who can go in and who can. But in Ontario,
0: that's how it works. Now, do they have different school boards?
1: Yes. So okay. the school boards are run, you know, regionally. Gotcha. But the whole education system is uh, governed by the province, but then there are different regional school boards.
0: Because I didn't know if there would be like the French school school board and then like the English school school board. Oh, yeah, I know.
1: They're separate school boards. Yeah, they exactly. are. OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are four. Um, there's the English public, English Catholic, French public, French Catholic. <laughs> that sounds like such a mess. It's it's crazy and expensive. Right. So they're <laughs> going yet another round of cuts. And so we'll see sure. what we need,
0: you know, but. Yeah, I'm sure you want to make sure that uh, the other three don't get one more penny per student. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. allocated it to your school board.
1: Actually, there's kind of becoming a solidarity, I think, between all four school boards. Just, oh, yeah. really? <laughs> yeah, as long as we can keep public education, we'll be happy.
0: <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Now, a major theme of our podcast right from the very beginning has been the concept of le survivance. It was mm-hmm. a big deal that for generations, the French Canadians that migrated really wanted to hang on to their language, their faith, and their traditions that they had when they were in Quebec. Um, do you, is that the same kind of struggle, the same kind of, does it have the title, the, the survival? the same kind of thing in Ontario?
1: Well, I, I know that term, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I haven't studied a whole lot of Franco-American gotcha. history, so it must, it must. Yeah, that's a sure. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> yeah, and, and certainly the idea exists, has, has existed since, you know, it was the same time period that sure. migration occurred and there's been A number of struggles you know to to get language rights and in the beginning to get religious rights that's maybe faded a little bit but certainly the fight for language rights continues and for me when I think about you know what my I mean my grandmother going through where you know French education was banned and then even you know the way that um, the attitude towards francophones in certain um, communities wasn't positive necessarily sure. yeah. um, in the generation, you know, in, even in my parents' generation. And so I feel very fortunate now raising my children that, you know, I know that they can get a French education. I know that it's very well received. I know it's going to help them in the future. You know, so so these are all things that um, I think are, are great
0: progress. Yeah. One thing that I'm super encouraged by and I think it's kind of neat. You, you just highlighted it, kind of what your parents and stuff had to go through. Because one of the, again, the topic that we hear all the time, uh, there was a major brushback uh, to the French speakers that came to New England. Mm-hmm. From extremes all the way to the KKK to... Uh,
1: yeah, really bad. I I, well, the yeah. way we see it here is that it was worse, you know, in the U.S. even than yeah. we went through, but
0: yeah. But even like a generation ahead of me, there was the idea of being French was almost like synonymous with being low class.
1: Mm-hmm. So...
0: So now it kind of seems kind of cool that the story you're telling is that being able to speak French instead of labeling you as kind of a lower class person uh, almost sets you off as kind of unique and having an yeah. advantage, which is really cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a it's quite a reversal. Um, yeah, and I, I've seen both because I sort of grew up in that in between period um, sure. when I was a kid. It wasn't super cool to speak French. I have to yeah. say, sure. um, you know, and then it sort of. Um, shifted when I reached, you know, uh, not really high school, but certainly by university it was, um, you know, and I hope that's true everywhere. I know it's true in Toronto, um, you know, in Ottawa, as I was saying, right. I don't know. some of the smaller communities I think maybe are a little bit more entrenched in um, views from the past. So maybe not as much there, but. Um.
0: No. And one of the things I did want to bring up, cause we exchanged a couple of emails ahead of this. And you brought up something which I thought was interesting that there's almost a like a scorecard of who is more French. I might be more French than Mike because I had two Francophone parents, but somebody who speaks French might would probably be more French than me because I don't. And th- and then this has like almost social consequence depending on who's more French and who isn't.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the flip side. You know, another kind of I don't know if we call it discrimination, but it's another sort of way to make that that can make people who for various reasons couldn't learn French maybe at a level where sure. they feel completely comfortable expressing themselves can sort of make them feel outside of the, the group or the community and uh, it's unfortunate I don't know I mean sometimes people you know maybe didn't make the efforts they needed to make. And, sure. and, but, but there are certainly cases where they would have wanted to, but for various reasons couldn't. And uh, and so it's unfortunate, I think, to kind of judge people or ostracize people on those grounds.
0: But, yeah, I, I,
1: I definitely it happens.
0: Yeah, it's, that kind of thing is, seems kind of super frustrating from my perspective because I don't see anything productive accomplished by, mm-hmm. having, by having a scorecard of... Yeah. Okay. Well, you uh, you check three French boxes, therefore you're more French than this guy who only checks two French boxes. That's yeah, helpful.
1: yeah. Or I mean, it, because in Ontario, you know, there are some, especially in the Ottawa region, you know, people who can speak French, you know, just as fluently as people in Quebec. Sure. You know, and then but then there's a whole spectrum away from that, you know, and so there can be this sort of hierarchy of you know whose French is is better, is more native speaker, and right.
0: Yeah. And I find that, it, that you're, you bring up Quebec. I think the relationship, at least the minimal I know about the relationship between the Franco Ontarians and the French Canadians of Quebec is something I did not expect when I started this project at all. Cause it almost seems like a lot of times you don't have a ton of support from the French Canadians of Quebec because they're afraid, at least this is what I understand. Absolutely. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but mm. they're afraid that if their fr- minority rights of the French speakers in Ontario are honored, then they would maybe have to do the same with the English rights of the English speakers in the province of Quebec.
1: Mm -hmm. There is that for sure. And then I think there's just this among people who have sort of strong nationalistic feelings in Quebec, there is this need to perpetually identify as the kind of linguistic victim and when you sort of open up and say, okay, you know what, there are people who maybe don't speak perfect French who are maybe half Anglophone, but who also, you know, feel that they belong to this culture as well. That sort of puts into question, um, you know, some of that story that's, that's, you know, being reinforced all the time. And uh, that's, I feel that there's a sort of hesitancy there. And then there's just a lot of people who simply don't know or don't know that there are sort of, you know, 600,000 people in the neighbour sure. province. Um, so it's kind of sometimes just these very simplistic views of, you know, yeah, Anglophone Ontario, you know, and particularly Toronto is, sure. is often seen, you know, it's it's called um, La Ville Reine, you know, the Queen's town, you know, and, and so to think that, oh yeah, there are, you know, thousands of Francophones in Toronto who you could identify with, but often, you know, we don't. So yeah, it's, it's complicated and you know, I go to Quebec all the time and sure. you know, I have friends and family there. And so I, I feel like I kind of skirt both those worlds and, and that's an interesting place for me, but I see sometimes that, you know, there's, there's quite a divide.
0: It is well. super, it is super complicated. And I honestly, in a lot of ways I think it makes it more interesting because uh, I think no. a lot of the, uh, franco-americans especially those who don't know a ton about their personal history all they know is you know they had a meme growing up that's their knowledge of you know their franco-american roots Uh, i think they just envision when they think of canada to the north all the french people live in quebec and they only speak french there and everywhere else only speaks english it's kind of like the very basic idea and obviously the reality is is extremely more complicated than that
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, because you have you know New Brunswick and Ontario particularly because they're neighboring Quebec. I mean, obviously. Sure. So so and, you know there are other provinces as well. I don't want to you know minimize no, of that, but certainly there's big populations and and strong sentiments of being francophone in those places. So yeah.
0: Okay. Well, I'm pretty sure we could talk about this forever, but we got to move on to the really awesome book. Bride of New France, mm-hmm. and it, the book. It's a novel, a historic novel, which is really cool. And it, your novel follows a young woman. I hope I can get her name, Laurie Beauséjour. How did I do?
1: Yeah,
0: Laurie Beauséjour. Yeah, Beauséjour. Okay, cool. And she's a Fédérée. And what I think is really neat, from my perspective, when I was reading it, it follows her from before she even arrives in Canada. So it's, the story starts in Paris, which is super neat. Follows her in her trip. Uh, across the Atlantic her so life in Canada but before we get too far um, I want to make sure everybody at least knows what are the who were the Fidois.
1: Mm-hmm. so they were women um, who were sent by the French crown um, in the 1600s so most of them arrived in a 10-year period from 1663 to 1673 and there were uh, in that ten-year period there were close to a thousand about 900 women who were sent um, from France, largely from Paris, over half of them were sent from Paris to basically populate uh, what was then called New France, so the, the region of uh, current day Quebec, because there were men in, in and some religious people who were in Quebec at the time, but there were very few women, very few couples who were sort of, sure. you know, children and settling the land. It was sort of men who were there for the fur trade and then religious people who were there to convert um, the indigenous people or, you know, who had other sort of ambitions. Yeah. But there weren't sort of families that were settling and the crown decided, you know, we, we want to settle this land. I think they were starting to get nervous because of what was happening to the South with, with the English and, uh, and v- of women over. Yeah. And that's what that was the basic sort of premise for the novel.
0: Sure. And then what made you decide that you were going to follow a specific Fideiroir and her, tell her story?
1: Mm-hmm. so I guess I wanted to um to sort of challenge the the narrative that existed um in in Quebec and, and even French Canadians you know the sort of narrative that I got growing up about the Fides du dois, which was that they were sort of happy, willing participants in this uh, effort to populate the land sure and I sort of wanted to. Well, first of all, just to see was it true, you know, and and to investigate, like, well, how how did it happen and and where did they come from and what were the circumstances and what did they encounter? And, you know, so when I started doing the research, I soon realized that um, actually it wouldn't for many of them have been uh, a positive experience, at least the, the, the process of getting from France and sort of the early months or years of, of sure. going into uh, Canada would have been pretty harrowing. And I, I sort of decided that, you know, I want to write a book about that period, you know, not sort of the whole life all the way in, until they died, you know, in Canada, but sort of just looking at that period of migration.
0: So I think a lot of our listeners um, will be familiar with the Figueroa because, you know, a lot of them get their ancestry back to a roi. That's kind of like a big deal. That kind of, like, gives you uh, some cred if you, the, the, you're a French-Canadian, you can tr- chase it all the way back to a feed to uh, So I think we know the story. But the story we get, I think, starts when they arrive in uh, Canada. So when they, you know, get off either in Quebec City or trois or Montreal, that's kind of, like, the story we know. Well, I think a novel was super, super interesting, at least for me, was because it started in Paris at a major location early on in that novel. Is a place, and I hope I'm going to give anywhere close to pronouncing this correctly, the Salpetriere. How did do? Mm.
1: Yeah, you? yeah, uh, very good. yeah, yeah.
0: No, so what is this location? What is it about? And how did you research this place? What it must have been like during the time of when your main characters were there?
1: Well, that place is just fascinating from a Western history perspective. So I was like, wow, when, when I sort of heard that so many of the women came from there, first of all, it told me, oh, okay, this wasn't good. Sure. <laughs> and then secondly, I was like, wow, what a fascinating connection to an institution that's so symbolic in the West. I mean, well, for one thing, Lady Diana died there. But also, um, you know, Michel Foucault, when he wrote about um, Le Grat daufel Ma you know, that was the place he was writing about because it was sort of the first... Huge place of incarceration for the poor, and um, you know, and that's where these women were taken from, largely. So for me, I was like, wow, what a what a horrible place! But but how interesting that that they escaped for one thing, in a way. But then you know, what did they escape to? I don't know. But but just what an amazing connection to. Um, to European history, you know, and I think that's sure. often like quite separate, right? You know, there's European history and then there's American history and they sort of right. they don't always meet. And so for me, it was a really interesting place. And, and the fact that the building is still there and it's so horrible and magnificent at once. And, and um, yeah, so I spent six months in Paris so that I could, um, you know, read through the archival material. And so that's where I sort of found... You know, what daily life was like for the women. Um, you know, there were some records of women being recruited, the letters that were being written asking for women from the institution, you know, that sort of thing. For me, it was was fascinating. And, and that kind of formed like the first uh, part of the
0: book. Sure. Now, how much say or how much f- free choice did those who ended up on this boat have? From
1: my research and my opinion, um, very little, you know. It was, you're, you're, we're being asked by the Crown to provide a certain number of women, and these are the women that we've designated. Now, whether a few of them were able to say, no, not me, her, <laughs> possibly. Sure. But beyond that, I mean, they didn't have a choice because these women were destitute. They were the lowest of the low.
0: You know, they were living among
1: people who were physically ill, mentally ill, whatever they sort of got sent is where they went. And so that's, um, but that isn't something that is necessarily in the mainstream narrative about the fait right, um, Of course. Always look good or, or we don't sometimes want to think of our ancestors that way. I don't mind, but some people seem to have this idea that they want to have, you know, some glorious tale, of you know, but yeah, unfortunately there, there were a number, if not most of the women that would have been forced to, uh,
0: Come over. something i found interesting was laurie's impression of what canada would be like before she even left like there was an expectation mm. and, I'm, and i'm curious to know before they even got on the boat somebody who these poor from paris what would they have known about canada what what would they have known about what they were walking into
1: yeah well what they would have known primarily would have come from the jesuit relations which was the most read book in, in um, France at the time. I read, you know, I mean, somebody would read it and a hundred people would sit around, you know, the thing, but it was, um, and that was the tale of sort of indigenous people not wanting to convert (laughs) and torturing priests and all of this sort of stuff that the Jesuits, the Jesuit priests were sending back in their writings about, and then also about the climate and about, you know, the insects and the forests and, you know, all of these extremely difficult things. So it was seen that only crazy religious zealots would choose to go there, right? And and for others, it was, it was sort of, a, you know, or sort of fur trading adventurers who were super desperate and had no other means to support themselves. And so they went and did this in the hopes of, you know, gaining some kind of wealth. So for, sure. for women, I mean, there was no way they would have said, yes, I'd like to go there and family like <laughs> yeah right yeah
0: you talk a little bit about also which I think is kind of cool the voyage itself now what was this actual again because the story I've always been told starts when they arrive in Canada um, mm-hmm.
1: so I what, paintings as well those paintings are just the worst in terms of creating the historical narrative they were paintings done in the 19th century that they did while getting off the boats wearing these big gowns right yeah yeah, and of course, that would have been the furthest thing from the truth, A, because they didn't own gowns, and B, because they would have been emaciated, you know, sure. ill by the time they they hit land. They wouldn't have been these, like, elegant ladies stepping off the two-month journey across the ocean. So.
0: I guess that's the thing. It, it, it took two months to make the trip. Yeah. That's, yeah. And when they arrived, and one of the things, again... That I hadn't really given much thought to be honest uh, prior to reading uh, your book is that uh, the character, your main character um, has significant interaction uh, with Native Americans
1: mm-hmm. and,
0: and for me, again super simplistic idea was that, you know, there's a lot of gentlemen I figure the fellows, you know, they went out they would trade with the Native Americans but just to, I never really honestly gave a ton of thought, I must confess to the fact that some of the Fidurois themselves would have had interactions with yeah. Native peoples
1: Yes, but, you know, this is where you get some fictive license, too. Well, I mean, certainly the, the numbers were far higher because the men were going out into communities to get fur, um, whereas the women were sort of staying behind in the cabins while the men um, were gone for the winter. So the the opportunity for interaction wouldn't have been as high. But for me, it was sort of, you know, that whole part of the story was also an exercise in sort of you know, beginning to explore the idea of, you know, what was the interaction between um, women and Indigenous people? You know, so, yeah, so she had, you know, a Native lover, but also there, you know, there were the, the girls that were in the, in the school where she right. was staying, and, you know, because you don't sort of get a lot of that information. Um, the way history is often written is sort of what serves the, you know, the state or the crown's purpose at the time. And, you know, the role that was assigned to those women was, you know, to marry Frenchmen and have babies. And that's sort of, therefore, what history ends up looking at, right? But, of course, sure. in these stories, you know, I encountered one record that, that, you know, said that a French, which was kind of what inspired this, that a French woman um, was so out of her mind, apparently, that she gave her child away to the natives, you know, and, and so... Yeah. Um, You know, so there were these little stories that were that didn't make it into the kind of master historical narrative, but mm -hmm. So I wanted to to explore some of that, yeah
0: Yeah, that's awesome, and I guess before we get any further, what were the ages are we talking about here? Because these people were incredibly young, these women that made the trip
1: yeah, well, there was an age range. I think that the character that I wrote was younger than average. Okay. Um, so they, they went up to um, like mid 30s. You know, that was kind That's of you. because they obviously had to be of childbearing, you know, years. But the average age would probably have been like early 20s.
0: Early 20s would, I mean, I guess from my perspective, seems really young to all of a well, sudden yeah. be, be, gi- <laughs> be giving up everything you've ever known in your entire life and heading off to some type of unknown future it just kind well, of
1: yeah exactly and that's what i kind of wanted to capture was this idea like who would want to sort of get a letter one day that hey <laughs> you're going to be plucked from here and thrown on a boat and going to end up in a forest somewhere marrying a stranger and having children
0: <laughs> that's it you got to be sent to marry a stranger now how much say did they have on which stranger they were going to end up marrying
1: yeah so once they got um to canada There was some say, but but there was a short time delay in which they were expected to make their choice, if you want to call it that. So, you know, you can't have sort of cycled through, okay, I'm gonna talk to different guys and see, you know, so (laughs) maybe the first one they could say, whoa, there was something horribly wrong with him. And so perhaps then the second one they had to choose, you know, so wasn't a huge amount of choice. What they could do though, which was kind of funny, is that if they got out. To his settlement, you know, wherever he took them to, and saw that there wasn't a cabin or the cabin was very inadequate, they could then go back somehow. I don't know how they got back, if <laughs> they told him or, or yeah. ran away or, but, and, and sort of say that, you know, listen, this guy doesn't even have a house. <laughs> um, okay. And then they were able to have an annulment and marry somebody else. So that happened a number of times. So there was a little bit of license,
0: but. Uh, yeah, it's good to it. <laughs> At least they, they had a little bit of, I mean, of power, I guess, and that to be able to almost veto if the situation was completely miserable. Yeah,
1: yeah, a little bit. Like certainly more than they would have had in France, because a lot of these women in France would not have been marriage material because of where they were coming from. You know, that that poor house was was wasn't somewhere you'd go to get a wife. Like, let's just put not it right. that way. Yeah. Like so. So most of them wouldn't have been married. They would have grown old and probably not and never reached old age, but would have you know died in that institution. So in that sense, I guess it was an improvement looking at, you know, because a lot of them ended up having a lot of children and living exceptionally long lives for the period. So they ended up at least physically being healthy. So
0: that was a positive
1: development from their move.
0: We talked a lot about the feederwa and the main characters, the feederwa, but... Also appearing in this story, and again, at least what I believe to be a Correur de Bois, Correur uh-huh. de Bois, am I I'm coming anywhere close? Uh, Desbois, yeah. yeah. okay. And can you maybe tell us who they are because obviously that that plays an important role in, in the narrative here.
1: So they were um, men who were French men who had come um, also generally from lower um, so, social status. You know, who had come from France decided they wanted to try their fortunes in the fur industry in, in, uh, in New France, in Quebec. And so they would um, get contracts. I mean, I'm not an expert on the Cureu de Bois, so I don't know all the ins and outs. Sure. Because there were some that were legitimately hired by the Crown, and then there were some who were kind of doing it as a sideline, and the Crown was always trying to prevent them and apprehend them and stuff. So I don't know exactly. But the ones who were legitimate were um, given contracts and they would um, go out into indigenous communities and um, trade goods for fur and come back with the fur and and then it would go off to France and they would make uh, often hats out of uh, beaver pelts, particularly, but other furs as well. Yeah, so that was sort of what they did. Um, But the idea was that, well, when um, when the French were first Uh, kind of doing this venture in the Quebec region, they had hoped, well, the church had hoped and the crown to some extent, they had hoped they would create a settlement out of um, French men marrying Native women and bringing them into the French society that would start to form was their hope. But what was happening was the inverse. The French men were going out into Native um, communities and they were staying or they were... becoming, you know, more enculturated by them than the reverse. And so that's when they sort of came up with this idea. Okay, you know what, we're gonna send European women over. We're gonna force the men to come out of the woods, marry these women. And the men by and large didn't want the Frenchmen by and large didn't want to um leave the woods and and settle. Yeah. So they didn't always receive the idea of um you know, the fact that they had to get married and they had to settle, partly for economic reasons, and then some of them, you know, liked the, the freedom that they had and stuff, so, yeah.
0: Well, what I think is absolutely awesome about the book is because you tell a story, again, I've said it from the very beginning, that we don't hear very often. This is not the story of the elite who settled Quebec.
1: Mm-hmm. These
0: are the story of the average, the lower-class people. So I would have to think it would have to be super rewarding, particularly rewarding uh, to tell The story, Lurie's story, because, again, we don't get it very often. And maybe you can talk a little bit before we move on from the book about what the legacy in the larger sense is of the Fidrois. What can we learn from them? What can we study, learn from maybe studying other lower class European settlers or maybe the Native Americans or the African slaves of the colonial period? Uh, What can we gain from, you know, studying their story, writing about their story, either in, in nonfiction or in historical fiction?
1: if we can sort of let go of the idea that, you know, it was only the elite that had the worthy story and, and you know, yeah. the worthy lineage and, and sort of all of that and embrace the idea that, you know, there were a lot of people who were here, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, yeah, there were the lower class Europeans, but also obviously the slaves that were brought over, there were, you know, the indigenous people that were already here and sort of looking at all those stories to create a kind of, a new society that's you know more egalitarian rather than just trying to reproduce the the european model you know on a new territory and uh yeah so that's that's kind of my you know bigger things but yeah it's one small story in that
0: but well this has been awesome thank you so much for the conversation now what is next for you
1: yeah. Well, actually, I'm working on a second novel. It's
0: been a little slow because I have had three children, and so
1: <laughs> good for uh, you. Good. Yeah. But um, but yeah. But I, I'm working on it, and it's kind of you know it's getting getting towards the end phases, and it's uh, actually looking at the conflict between the French and the Iroquois. Oh wow. And, yeah. And it sort of got interested in that when I was writing Bride of New France because. I was encountering the Iroquois so much in the records written by French people in such a negative way. Um, you know, they were seen as these horrible, violent barbarians that were destroying, you know, our colony and, and sort of all of this. And and it, it it didn't ring true for me as I was reading it, you know, sure. years later. And so I kind of wanted to explore that a little bit more. And, and so I've, I think I've come to learn quite a bit about, you know, the Haudenosaunee people and... And um, actually in, in upstate New York as well. And, sure. uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of writing the story of um, there, there was a, a, a massacre that occurred in Quebec that was led by the Iroquois, and it's always been sort of talked about in a vacuum. But when you do the research, you see that, oh, there was a whole lot that led up to that really horrible um, things that the French had done. And so it's kind of a book that exposes a bit of that and, and sort of looks at that dynamic. And so, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's super interesting. When is, that going to be, when is that going to be available, you think?
1: Yeah, hopefully next year. I, I think towards right. um, the end. Yeah.
0: Very cool. So when that's available, that means you're going to have to come back on the podcast.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, again, finding me and having this talk. It's been really nice. Well,
0: this has been awesome. Again, my guest... Is Suzanne de Rocher the novel is Bride of New France? I gotta absolutely thank my sister Monique who bought it for me, gave it to me, yeah. told me I had to read it. So that's <laughs> to this whole thing. So again, thank you so much for coming. If somebody wants the book, where should we go? Where should we send them? got
1: yeah, Amazon. Oh God, I should say something better
0: than that, right? It's fine. We'll just go with that. You're awesome. So yeah, we'll put a link to so make sure everybody can easily get access to it. Thank you so much again for joining the podcast.
1: All right, thank you
0: now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply do not share but the spirit never
1: dies our culture will survive each of us must choose how
0: much to keep alive each of us must choose how much to keep alive